The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. So at this time, I would ask that you please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, and today we're going to begin at verse 19. Previously in the book of Acts, we've seen the Gentile converts come to know Jesus and place their faith in him, and last week we saw how the apostles in Jerusalem were amazed that the grace of God had broken down the dividing wall of separation that had existed between the Jews and the Gentiles, and that God had grafted the Gentiles into his plan and promises for salvation. Today we're going to see that soon after Cornelius and his household were saved, many other Gentiles followed. So now we turn our attention to the holy and powerful word of God. What I say from this pulpit can be flawed. This is God's word. This is his holy divine revelation. This is infallible. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 19. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, every one according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I ask that right now you would illumine our hearts, that you would illuminate our minds today. May this be to us more than mere inductive logic examination of a text. Cause this, I pray, Lord, to be doctrine that dances and theology that sings in resonance with who you are. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of their hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. Lord, I ask that as I proclaim your precepts, the heart of the people would say amen. Lord, I pray that you would please take my feeble attempts to explain your glorious word and make this pulpit aflame with truth and power. Seize the heart of the sinner. Reorder the mind of the skeptic. Lord, I pray that you would soothe the pain of those who are suffering and shatter the world of the self-deceived and self-righteous. 
We need your grace right now, O Lord. Be our guide. Teach us, we pray. Amen. Our text this morning is primarily going to speak to the manner in which the church should operate when it's functioning properly. Therefore, our sermon today is going to consider seven points specifically relating to these verses and what they reveal about God's plan for the expansion of his kingdom. Here are our seven points. First, the church must expand the kingdom globally. Second, the church must examine new believers carefully. Third, the church must exhort the saints passionately. Fourth, the church must educate the body skillfully. Fifth, the church must emulate Christ faithfully. Sixth, the church must express love sacrificially. And seventh, the church must exercise authority locally. Let's begin at point number one. The church must expand the kingdom globally. Read again with me verses 19 through 21. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Our family is a big board game family. We like to play games. I actually find games to be a great way to spend time with one another because we get to actually have face time rather than looking at a screen, and we get to learn the way our minds work. It's a, it's a unique way to get into the brain of the other individual. And uh, one educational game that we have is a game called Timeline, and in this game there is a stack of cards and on one side, it's got an, an image with something on it, like the invention of the light bulb. And on the other side of the card, it will tell you the year that that was invented. And so there's a line of these cards that will exist on the table in chronological order by date. And what you do with your hand is when it is your turn, you must place your card in the right spot in the timeline. And if you fail... You have to draw more cards into your hand, and the first player to run out of cards wins the game. So what happens is the table will begin to fill up with more and more pieces, and it becomes more and more challenging to know where these dates are supposed to fit. So, for example, if you had a card about the invention of the electric light bulb, you would probably place it after the signing of the Declaration of Independence and before the Battle of Waterloo. And as the game goes on, more and more cards on this table are going to make it more difficult to see how the puzzle of history actually fits together. But it's a fun exercise. So for us, looking back at the book of Acts, getting a sense of time can kind of be like this. It's challenging for us to take a history book like the book of Acts that was written to a first century audience to see the time indicators and the markers that are in place there. For example, it says that this, this uh, famine that comes, comes during the time of Claudia. Claudius, who, who is that? What is the point of knowing that? Well, Luke has hundreds of these markers that will give us very specific information about when these things are taking place. But for us, it can be challenging to get the timeline in our mind. So I'm going to try to help you a little bit here to see what's going on in these first few verses in terms of the length of time that is taking place. In particular, he starts by saying this moment began, this evangelistic outreach began when everyone left because of the stoning of Stephen. So we are rewinding now back to the book of Acts chapter 9, and we are remembering that when Stephen was stoned to death, 
a broad swath of people left Jerusalem and spread out all across the nation, all across the entire, all across the entire empire. So as we see happening in that time, it is a fulfillment of Acts chapter 8, 1 verse 8, where it says that he, they are going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the outermost parts of the world. We are seeing that expansion take place. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, after the stoning of Stephen, we see that separation, that expulsion, that driving of the people away, not by a missional intentionality, but by design that God sent persecution to spread them out. So what we see taking place here is that there is now a gap of time that Luke is covering, roughly 10 years of events that are spreading out between the stoning of Stephen and what we see actually taking place in our text this morning. So we see that these people that took the gospel with them, they're, they're not missionaries in the sense that they were sent out by the church. These were religious refugees. These were people seeking asylum in other parts of the empire these were just regular Joes. These were average Christians who left their home in Jerusalem so that they would avoid imprisonment or worse. But when they left Israel, they did not leave Jesus behind. Verse 19 tells us at this time, they carried the gospel where? To Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. However, just like everyone else up to that time, they had only been sharing the gospel with the Jews, most likely using the synagogues as their primary target of evangelism, just like we see all of the other missionaries doing in the New Testament. But then, some of the men, it says, from Cyprus and Cyrene began to share the gospel with the Hellenists. Who are these Hellenists? Well, it's first important to know that Cyprus is an island off of the coast of Israel, and Cyrene is actually much farther away in modern-day Libya in North Africa. These people were not close by. These people traveled to Antioch for the purpose, it seems, of sharing the gospel. And these men, again, were not apostles. They were just average believers who carried that gospel with them when they went to Antioch. And at some point, it seems, that they began to go beyond the Jews and preach the gospel to the Hellenists. Who are these people? Well, first, don't confuse them with the Hellenistic widows that we read about earlier in the book. Remember when they were being overlooked in the distribution of food, and therefore we had the first kind of proto-deacons set up? Well, these people are not the same kind of people. The, the Hellenistic Jews that were there were Hellenistic, but they were not Hellenists, which means they were Jewish women who had been uh, raised or brought up speaking Greek in the other parts of the Roman Empire. These are full-blooded Gentiles they were talking about in this chapter. They have no claims to the Old Covenant law. They have no claims to the promises of Abraham at the beginning of this chapter. So don't confuse these two. These people are full-fledged Gentiles. And here, what the point we see taking place in this chapter is that God has not only saved one family or one small unit of people in Cornelius that are Gentiles, he is opening the floodgates wide and bringing in swaths of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. So from this point forward in the book of Acts, the Gentile believers are going to be the primary focus of evangelism. And from this time forward, Antioch is going to become the home base and most significant church of the first century. One of the most sexually perverse cities in our country is the city of Austin, Texas. I don't know if you guys have ever been there. It's a weird place. 
In the year 2000, that's why they adopted the phrase, Keep Austin Weird, as their official town slogan. And now several cities in America have borrowed that phrase, for example, Portland, Oregon, where my wife lived for a time. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was second only, or third only to Rome, and then Alexandria, and then Antioch. And it was like the worst parts of Las Vegas and Austin and New Orleans kind of all wrapped into one. Antioch was famous for entertainment, especially chariot racing. And just like the Belmont, the races bring with them gambling and a large criminal underbelly to society. Antioch was also home to the Temple of Daphne. And if you know your historical pantheons, then where the divine romance existed was with Apollo and Daphne. So this is a story, a love story, that is very explicit in ancient literature. And this process of this very explicit kind of uh, event was worshipfully reenacted every night in the Temple of Daphne with cult prostitution. And there was also a temple to Astarte, which is the goddess of sex and fertility. And uh, this temple was known for hosting the largest population of adult and children, male and female, slave cult prostitutes, the largest group of them in the entire Roman Empire. And there were also large temples that existed within five miles of this city, temples to Zeus, Apollos, Poseidon, Adonis, and Tiki, all within five miles of one another. This was a place of paganism, and this was a place of sexual immorality to the extreme. So I think by now you're getting the picture. This is not the kind of place that you would anticipate the church to thrive. Yet just like a, a blade of grass can somehow find its way through the sidewalk, so the Holy Spirit caused the church to break through all of the filth and the sin of Antioch to produce a vibrant and incredible missionally-minded church. This should give us much hope as we look at our warped and twisted society around us here in the New York metro. God is able. Amen? So as we learned last week, it's always God's plan for the gospel to go global. For example, we learned that the centurion and his friends and family came to faith. Remember, it says that they had a large gathering of people that were waiting. A couple weeks ago, Gideon shared with us that they were just kind of waiting in his home for the gospel to come from Peter. Who were all these people? Well, the centurion was a Roman. It stands to reason to me, most of the people he knew were probably also soldiers under his command. Well, it's very interesting. Did you know that roughly 100 years after that event, the first missionaries were sent to England, and when they got there, they were stunned to find that there were pockets of Christians all over England already. How in the world did they get there? The amazing thing is, they were the faith had been brought there by Roman soldiers. And we don't know who, but it's very possible that that man himself traveled all the way to the British Isles, carrying with him the gospel. Likewise, these unnamed men who were responsible for the birth of the church at Antioch were functionally fugitives from Jerusalem, and this was not their original intention. They didn't think to themselves, you know what, I'm just going to pack it up, leave Jerusalem so that I can go share the gospel in Antioch. No, their, their intention was to stay in Jerusalem, but they were forced by the circumstances to go. And that was the mighty hand of God deliberately moving them to the place where he wanted them. They didn't get together with the apostles and lay out a five-year plan. Rather, they faithfully preached the gospel wherever God led them. So brothers and sisters, I, when I say that the church must expand globally, I don't want you to think about just Italy and Indonesia or 
Belarus and Brazil, I want you to think about your living room. And I want you to think about your train car on the way to work. And I want you to think about the break room that you share with other people. I want you to see that God's global mission means that you carry the gospel wherever you go. That's what these first century Christians understood. And they developed one of the most influential churches in the history of the world. Not because they were the greatest of the great but because they were faithful Christians who shared Christ wherever they went. What if those men just said in their hearts, let's leave that to the professionals. Let's just leave that to those people who are paid to be missionaries. Let's just leave that to the people who are full-time pastors. Maybe Peter will show up here eventually and preach to these people. Please don't abdicate your great privilege to be brought into God's glorious plan to save the world. We get to take part in that mission, and that is no small gift. May God bless our efforts here that the New York metro would be filled with the glory of God. We need to pray that just like in Antioch, a great number would believe and turn to the Lord, as it says. The church must expand God's kingdom globally. Secondly, the church must examine new believers carefully. Look again at verse 22. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now at this point, The church in Jerusalem was seemingly skeptical about the genuineness of these conversions in Antioch, so they sent somebody up there to confirm the report. We see this happening over and over, remember? The the apostles seem to be uncertain about the faith in Samaria, so they send uh, a couple guys up there to go make sure and check it out. And what do they say? Oh, yep, we see that this is genuine. And then the same thing happens later on with Cornelius, where Peter comes back and he says, we have evidence, we can prove it. The same Holy Spirit fell on them just like it did on us. So God is using these uh, events so that he might prove these people are part of the same kingdom as those who are in Jerusalem. Not only was Barnabas a mature believer and therefore chosen for this purpose, he had also been part of the Jerusalem church now for over a decade Ten years had passed since the stoning of Stephen, and this man is still serving faithfully in a committed way, and it calls him a good man. Brothers and sisters, our church is only four years old. May in ten years from now, we say that the people in this room are still serving the Lord faithfully in a committed way like this man, and beyond a decade as well. This man was also from Cyprus. Barnabas, his, his name is literally Joseph, but they gave him this name, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement because he was such an encourager, which indicates to me that they called him son. He was probably a young man 10 years earlier. Now I'm assuming he's in his early 30s or maybe early 40s. And so they send him up there to Antioch. And I think part of the reasoning was, well, the missionaries that went there are from Cyprus and Cyrene. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Maybe he'll get along well and know them and understand them and connect with them. So maybe he had a previous relationship with them. We don't know. But he goes and he meets with these people who had been in Jerusalem and then in Cyprus and Cyrene and then in Antioch to meet with them and connect with them and see what's going on with them. And there are many strains that, uh, of Christian um, proclamation that exists today, I think, that we need to be examining like Barnabas did. There are many cultural forms of Christianity in our world that are not actually Christianity at all. Not everybody who says, I am a Christian, actually knows and loves Christ. I think you know that. I think you understand that. There are many who call themselves Christians, but they deny the deity of Jesus. They don't think that he is God. They are not truly saved. 
There are many people who call themselves Christians, yet they believe they are saved not by grace and not by the blood of Christ, but by the blood of Jesus plus their own works and merit. That is not salvation. There are many who call themselves Christians, but they live however they want, without regard for God's word, and that therefore they prove themselves to be self-deceived. These people are not Christians. So when someone tells you that they are a Christian, be happy about that, be encouraged by that, but also be sure that you know what they mean by that term before you simply consider them a brother or sister in Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, folks that totally deny the gospel itself, they will say to you, to your face, I am a Christian, yet not comprehend the gospel. Beware of the term being so nebulous and expansive today that it's kind of lost its meaning. So just like Barnabas here did in the first century, we likewise must discern who it is that truly is part of the kingdom of God. So at Redeeming Grace Fellowship, part of the purpose of membership of the church is to declare these people are part of who we believe God has truly saved within our midst. That's part of the purpose of membership itself. Let me borrow for a moment from Jonathan Lehman, who's an elder at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Uh, these are little small quotes taken from, we've got a bunch of those little colorful books on the bookshelf back there. One of them is called Church Membership. I'm just going to pull a, a few snippets from that. He says, what is church membership? It is a declaration of citizenship in Christ's kingdom. Church membership is a formal relationship between a church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. Church membership is all about a church taking specific responsibility for you and you for a church. And church membership begins when a local church affirms an individual Christian's profession of faith. We can't affirm somebody's profession of faith if they don't have a profession of faith. If they just say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I kind of believe in God. I kind of grew up this way. This is, this is, I've always been saved. I kind of always leaned in this direction. I've always known God. That's not a profession of faith. That's a profession of ignorance. When somebody says, well, yeah, I believe Jesus died on the cross, and so I just have to live in a better way, and if I just obey the laws of the Bible, then I'm a Christian. That's a profession of ignorance, not a profession of faith. When somebody says, I believe I am a sinner deserving of hell and God sent his son in love to redeem me and save me and restore me to a right relationship and I can do nothing to earn it or build it or buy it, but I have faith in Jesus Christ that he loved me and gave himself for me and he rose for my salvation and lives for my sanctification and today he is my king and my God. That is a profession of faith. So what we do together is we hear, we listen for a profession of faith. We we want to ensure that we know the people who are gathering together and who are declared part of this body really know Jesus Christ. Historically, church membership is the way that a church confesses, we believe this person is walking with Jesus. That's why our membership is long. It is Our process is thorough. Our process is expansive because we want to ensure that before the church votes to proclaim, yes, this person belongs to Christ, we must first fully confirm that they understand the gospel and know and believe in Christ. So the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to ensure that these people in Antioch really knew and believed the gospel because the church must examine new believers carefully. Third, the church must exhort the saints passionately. When he came and saw the grace of God, it says in verse 23, he, Barnabas, was glad. 
And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. <clears throat> when I first moved to New York, I was working in Manhattan. And I was taking the Long Island Railroad in every day. And there were two signs that really stood out to me. I don't ask me why. Just every day I would notice them. And uh, the f for some reason, they kind of fade into the mix now when I travel. But back then, I always took note of them. The first one was... Uh, the please stand behind the yellow line sign. You guys know what I'm talking about, the Long Island Railroad. You see it all the time. Now I probably wouldn't even notice it. And the second one is the one that says, see something, say something. You guys seen those signs also? Oh, see something, say something. Pay attention and then uh, speak up. Well, Barnabas, he was a man of encouragement. He was a man of exhortation. His birth name, again, was Joseph, but he was given this name or title, Barnabas, because he was such an encourager. So when he saw that God was doing something, he said something. See something, say something. Don't miss that little phrase, he saw the grace of God. Well, what does that mean? How can you visualize the grace of God? How do you see it in front of you? Well, in our vacation Bible school in the past, we've done something called grace sightings. And we have these little lights that light up that uh, when the kids see something that is different and out of the ordinary from our culture will say that it's a grace sighting. They recognize that there's something different here than in the world. And so they'll say, I see a grace sighting. And we'll take a little light. By the end of the week, we have all these little lights up on the stage. And basically what we want them to see is that God changes people, that there's a difference in the heart of a truly saved person. And that's not because they're a better person, but it's because the grace of God is working in them. Barnabas was so other-focused that he was seeing their spiritual growth, and that made him genuinely rejoice. He was seeing the grace of God. I see the grace of God at work in this church in that there are people who are much more spiritually mature now than they were a year ago. That is seeing the grace of God, because you did not get where you are today based on your own efforts or your own will. You are incapable of making one inch of movement towards a more holy lifestyle. That is the work of God in you. So Barnabas saw this, and he rejoiced, and it genuinely made him happy to see that the church was being worked over by God. It caused him to light up with joy when he recognized that God's working in someone else. I think it's very easy for us to become myopic and self-focused and only see when we're failing and where we're succeeding and we're not looking out at all. It's like our eyeballs have turned backwards in our head and we're just looking at ourselves all the time. We are part of a body. We are part of a church who is designed to look at what God is doing and see something and encourage one another. We are walking lockstep together, arm in arm towards heaven. We are called to do this with one another and not alone. So what did he do? He exhorted them to remain faithful. He did not want them to be like the seed that's sown on shallow soil that it takes root but then quickly withers away. Exhort is uh, the compound word parakaleo in Greek. This is two words which literally means to come alongside. Last summer I was helping my kids to learn to ride their bikes semi-successfully. And as we were doing this, there were many times when... Um, well, some of them are a little bit more balanced than others. And um, those who needed help, what did I do with them? I would run alongside the bike as long as I needed to to ensure that they could stay up and that they remained stable. 
And that's exactly what Barnabas is doing. And that is your calling here in this church as well. Who is in this church that you are supposed to come alongside? Who is it that you need to be running with, making sure that they are stable, making sure that they don't fall? Who can you bring under your wing to disciple? You have a significant part to play in the advancement of God's kingdom by doing what Barnabas did here. He's not teaching them. He's not training them. He's not giving them a theological background of the Old Testament. He's running alongside of them in encouragement and helping his fellow believers and bringing stability in their faith. In Antioch, this seems to be one of the chief causes of rapid expansion of God's kingdom. It says that many were added to the kingdom. The church must exhort the saints passionately. Point number four, the church must educate the body skillfully. Verse 25 and 26a says this, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. I want you to see that Tarsus is close to Antioch. If you have a a study Bible or a Bible with a, a little map in the back, you might take note of the fact that there's only about 80 miles difference across a delta between Tarsus and Antioch, but there's about a 310 mile difference between that and walking all the way down to Jerusalem. Barnabas was not making that trek all the way back home. Instead of going to Jerusalem, he just makes the short jaunt over where he remembers Paul is serving the Lord in his hometown of Tarsus, where he has been for probably about seven years. So Barnabas remembers that Paul is there, he travels there, and he remembers this guy was great at preaching the word of God. This man confounded the Jews. They would hear him, and he, couldn't, he would preach about Jesus, and they had no answer for him. And he said, man, that's the kind of guy that I need to come serve with me. It does not seem to me that Barnabas is ever really a preacher or teacher type in the, the book of Acts. I recognize that this is an argument from silence, which is not always the best way to study. But the fact is that Barnabas always seems to recognize that there's somebody more gifted than he is in the area of teaching and preaching. And therefore, he himself sinks into the background in order to care for other aspects of the ministry. This is just one indicator from Scripture among many that the the church is designed to have many gifts, You don't have the same gifts as I do, and I don't have the same gifts as you do. And that's intentional. That's God's design for us in the body so that we might be well-equipped as a group of people to carry out the work of the word. This is the first time that Paul is going to find himself now preaching to the Gentiles, fulfilling the promise that God gave to Ananias. Remember when Ananias was sent to go speak to Saul of Tarsus, and he was terrified? And he said, but God, don't you know who this guy is? This guy was killing a bunch of Christians. And um, in Acts chapter 9, God said to Ananias, I have chosen him to be an instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. Well, here that process begins a decade later. One thing that is always a priority in the book of Acts is the teaching and preaching of the word of God for edification of the body. I I, I know a man who is a leader of a church planting organization. This man is, uh, in terms of, earthly position. This man has high authority. He has many people under him. And uh, he once personally told me, Caleb, you know, don't consider the sermon the main meal for your church. It's the wrong way to think about it. He went on to explain then that sermons would be too heady and too uh, unhelpful to people if I made that the main source of their spiritual diet. But I want you all to know that I have nothing else of value to give you. 
Maybe I could encourage you for a moment. That would fade. You probably wouldn't even make it at the time you walk out the door. Perhaps I could motivate you. Don't think I'm really good at that. Even if I did motivate you, that would be short-lived. It's unlikely, but perhaps I could entertain you for a few minutes. Maybe I could make you laugh. Really, I'm not gifted as being funny. That's not who God made me to be. But even if I was able to entertain you, that would just be empty calories for your soul, and it would leave you spiritually malnourished in the long term. So, no. Just like every church that we see here in the early church, in in the book of Acts, we want RGF to be dynamically centered around the Word of God, and we want to preach it with skill and with precision. Why did Barnabas go get Paul? He went and got him because he needed somebody who could teach and preach that was gifted to carry out the, the proclamation of the word with skill and precision. So he humbly goes and gets him. So I ask that you would pray for me, and I ask that you would pray for all of those who stand in this little box here to proclaim and explain the word of God to you. For where else can we go? God alone has the words of eternal life. It is the word of God that is living and active. It is the word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow that discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is why I need you to pray for me and for those who preach here that we would make this central so that you might grow. The church must educate the body skillfully. Point number five, the church must emulate Christ faithfully. It says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The word Christian is rarely used in the Bible. In fact, it only shows up three times. We find it one more time in the book of Acts and once in the book of 1 Peter. And interestingly, all three of these occasions occur from unbelievers speaking about believers or toward believers. It is how the, the unbelieving world sees the church. And this was used as a derogatory term for believers. It is a pejorative way for them to mock followers of Christ. The word Christian is actually a mishmash of Greek and Latin, and it literally means little Messiah. These disciples didn't fit the mold of Jew or Gentile. There's now this third category, so they needed something to call them. So there was a nickname that was given to these believers to highlight the fact that they wanted people to to save these people from their sins. And many people in Antioch, they're just like people today. They didn't feel the desire or feel the need to be saved. So they would deride the believer and say, oh, you're my little Messiah. You're my little Messiah, you little Christian. This was a derogatory term. However, over the course of church history, true disciples of Jesus have clung to that word and they've declared it to be very true. Look, we can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. But we are ambassadors for the one who came to seek and save the lost. We are ministers of reconciliation as God makes his appeal through us, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. And we certainly are not Jesus, but we should look like him as we are conformed into his image. As it says in 1 John 2.6, whoever says that he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's what it means to be a Christian. As I mentioned earlier, there are many who have taken on the title of Christian without any knowledge or care for Christ himself. It doesn't matter what we call ourselves, and it really honestly doesn't matter what the world calls us. What really truly matters is if God looks at us and he says, that one is mine. What truly matters is if God says, that is my child. He belongs to me or she belongs to my family. So nobody becomes a Christian simply by by deciding, hey, you know what, I'm going to take a ride on the holy train heading toward heaven. No, we are made Christians when we hear of how Jesus died for our sins and how he rose for our justification. We are made Christians 
when we see that we are sinners in light of a holy God. We are, are, are Christians when God makes our spirit alive so that we might respond to the good news of forgiveness. We are made Christians when we are given the gift of repentance so that we might reject the world and all of its lies and that we might turn and live for the Lord. So if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ today, this is, according to the word of God, today is the day of salvation. Don't let another day go by without trusting in him. Don't take for granted the breath in your lungs right now. You might not have that an hour from now. God has given you this very moment to hear the good news and to come to him. So look to Jesus and be saved. And Christians, if we truly belong to him, we're going to live in such a way that we don't take the name of Jesus and put it on a chain and drag it behind us through the street, causing it to become filthy with the world. No, if we really know Jesus, then you know that you will walk like Jesus. We know full well that when the world knows you're a Christian, they immediately hold you to a higher standard than they hold themselves. You know that, right? When they know you're a Christian, they expect more from you. And if you do slip up in front of them, you know that they are quick to say, man, I thought you were a Christian. And they have a little smirk in the corner of their mouth. Walk humbly and obediently before the Lord. As it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The church must emulate Christ faithfully. Point number six, the church must express love sacrificially. Now in these days, it says in verse 27, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the day of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Here we're introduced to a very interesting character named Agabus, who he's going to show up again later in the book of Acts. And he is a legitimate prophet of the early church who heard from God and who spoke to the body concerning the things that were about to take place. Now, this kind of prophecy is one of the sign gifts that we here at RGF believe have ceased along with the age of the apostles. And if you'd like to know more about the New Testament gift of prophecy, I would love to speak with you personally, or you could wait a few months until Agabus shows up again, and we're going to flesh out what's going on with him a little bit further. One of the reasons that Antioch was such a large city was that it was situated on a large trade port right next to a giant area full of fertile grain fields. And grain is one of the best forces to combat famine because it can sit there basically for years without being destroyed by the elements, the heat and the cold and the weather. So when it says that they sent relief to Jerusalem, it's possible and likely that they were sending money, but it's also possible, according to some scholars, that they were actually sending them food to store up, just like they did in the days of, of Joseph in Egypt. They would store up food and prepare for what was coming. Either way, consider the immensity of that gift. The church in Jerusalem was massive, and it was not only large, it was growing. Yet there was a new church, this much smaller, certainly, church in Antioch, who seemed to have significant resources, and they came alongside the church in Jerusalem to show love to the brothers and sisters that it is almost 100% positive that most of these people had never met. People in the ancient world did not travel that far that often. It is unusual that someone would go 300 miles from their front door for no purpose, especially Gentiles. Why would they go to Jerusalem? So here what we see taking place is these believers are serving and loving other believers that they probably never met and probably never would meet till eternity. 
And I am 100% certain that there were homeless people in Antioch when they sent that gift with Paul and Barnabas to deliver it to Jerusalem. And when the famine hit, according to historians, it hit Antioch just as hard as it hit Jerusalem. But the focus of the church was first and foremost to financially support the needs of the body, and the primary focus was to give help to the household of faith. There's nothing wrong with supporting secular charities. There's nothing wrong with giving to the homeless or to the poor or to hurricane relief. That's a noble and kind gift. But what should we be focusing on here as a church? Where should our primary financial focus be? In recent years, I've heard actually of these churches, especially in Florida for some reason, who do this thing where they, they actually figure out exactly how to pay off all the medical debt of people in their county or their town. Uh, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But are we doing that here at our church? Why or why not? Why, why, why don't we do that? Well, let me give you two reasons. First of all, because ultimately the relief that people receive from having their bills paid, it only lasts until they die, if that. But the relief that comes from hearing the gospel and believing it is eternal. So we put our efforts financially into supporting gospel ministry. Secondly, we want to model our church on what we see here in the Bible. Therefore, when we are able to give, we do what the early church did, and we give to those who are part of the household of faith. So I am incredibly thankful that uh, our budget this year increased substantially in terms of our missionary giving. In fact, it more than doubled from last year where it was. That is the grace of God where God has given us uh, better financial footing so that we can continue to send faithfully and support faithfully those who are on the front lines of the mission field. And by the grace of God, we're able to take part in helping the church take root in the far reaches of the globe. We can help. But let me tell you something that I know for sure. This happens every year. There are people who are in the ministry, who are in missions, who have needs that arise, who don't see them coming up. Their car breaks down, a child gets sick, and, the, and something happens, and they need help. We as a church need to have our eyes focused on events like that, and we need to love them with our feet and with our prayers and with our wallets. You will also note that the giving of the church was not compulsory. There seems to have been a congregational agreement that they're going to support these people in Jerusalem, but there was no requirement laid on the people in terms of giving. Percentages are an Old Testament system. Although they can be very helpful as a baseline for financial planning for us, we never see them in the New Testament for example, we don't see that you're required to give a tenth, a tithe, literally is what tenth means. It always gives us the command to give, to always give according to what the Lord has given to us, but the command is never to give a percentage in the New Testament. In fact, if you add up all the percentages in the Old Testament that they give, it was actually, if you were a landowner, especially if you grew crops, it was closer to 38% than 10%. In the New Testament, there's never a percentage given. He just tells you to give faithfully, and the command is something that we are called to do out of what the Lord has blessed us with. We are to give faithfully and joyfully, recognizing that what we have comes from the Lord. Paul explains what this looks like in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, when he says, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So when the offering plates pass by in a few minutes, first of all, if, if you're a visitor with us, please don't feel any compulsion to put anything in the offering plate. We're just thankful that you're here with us. We're just glad that you're visiting today, and we want you to hear the word of the Lord. If you're part of this church and those pass by you, and, and you have a check in your hand, but you have a grudge in your heart that you have to give this, don't give it. 
The Bible wants you to give joyfully and cheerfully for the glory of God. It's not enough to say that we love the church. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We show love by sacrificially supporting the church both locally and globally. And so I want to encourage you to think like this early church did. See where the needs are and serve by giving faithfully of yourself. The church must express love sacrificially. Seventh, and finally, the church must exercise authority locally. I know I've been here for a while. I'll move rapidly through this point. There's an aspect of local authority that I want you to see here before we end, though, in verse 29. Look at that verse one more time. It says, So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Notice that the church in Antioch was not under the authority of the church in Jerusalem. Although the apostles exercised authority over every church because they were apostles sent by God for that purpose, they did not have any requirement to give in any ongoing way to the church in Jerusalem. It was not their mother church, as it were. So whenever a new church pops up in the New Testament, it's always part of the universal church, but they are also always independent in terms of their authority. They are autonomous local churches. So many denominations function in such a way that they require all of their churches to pay a percentage of the giving up the chain to their national headquarters. It's usually something like 10% where they say, well, give us a tithe out of your tithes, right? 10% of what you get. And uh, that goes up to them and it's like union dues for churches. In verse 29, the church in Jerusalem doesn't even ask for anything from them. They don't require anything from them. There is no financial structure in place, and there never will be in the New Testament over any church to give to a higher body over them. Neither church has claim on one another here, Jerusalem or Antioch. So we at RGF, we are part of a a convention, the Southern Baptist Convention. We are not part of a denomination. Our involvement with the Southern Baptist Convention is completely voluntary, so we can work together for the advancement of the kingdom, and we do so we, where we are able to serve and love and help and assist and be bigger than we are by giving to missionary funding and whatever else we can do or being part of their seminaries. We do that, but these are not compulsory. And that means that we are an autonomous local entity who follows the pattern of New Testament churches as being under the direct authority of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, and the word of God is the arbiter in all disputes. So we don't have a bureaucracy standing over us, just like the church in Antioch did not have one standing over them, because the church must exercise local authority. I'm going to stop there, but I encourage you, if you are able to be part of our fall conference, our Rooted in Christ conference, October 3rd, we're going to be focusing specifically on the theology, the aspect of theology called ecclesiology, which is the way that the church is supposed to function according to the Bible. So if you want to know more about it, put that on your calendar, October 3rd. It's going to be a really great time. So what did we discover this morning in the text? First, the church must expand the kingdom globally. And secondly, the church must examine new believers carefully. The church must exhort the saints passionately. The church must educate the body skillfully. The church must emulate Christ faithfully. The church must express love sacrificially. And the church must must exercise authority locally. And all of this is because the church is the bride of our Savior Jesus Christ, who is worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise. Let's pray to him. Our Father in heaven, we, we bless your name. We thank you, Lord, that... You are good and faithful and loving to your church. That though there are many that seek to rend your church asunder, that you always hold us fast. That you are the church's one foundation. Lord, we pray that you would help us to 
put into action these seven things that we saw in this text. We thank you, Lord, that your word is clear and your truth is evident. We pray, Lord, that we would be a faithful body of believers who seeks to live out what you tell us to do. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who is currently walking in a way that is in rebellion against you. Lord, please let them hear the gospel in this. Please help them to see that Jesus is a good Savior who loves and who redeems those who are far from him, if they will simply see and believe. Lord, I pray that you would cause those of us who know you to be encouraged and rejoice, seeing the grace of God before our eyes every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.